Well, happy uh, Father's Day, and dads, that was your gift. So um, if you were looking forward to something, we just gave it to you. Um, I'm sure you're like, why did I come to church for that? But uh, Opera Man was back. He thought he was gone, but we brought him back. Well, we do want to wish a happy Father's Day to all the dads uh, who are here today. And uh, a month ago, we had Mother's Day. And some of the dads came up to me and said, hey, man, when are we going to have our day? Well, if you're a dad today, today's your day. And uh, just like we appreciate the moms on Mother's Day, uh, we want to appreciate all the fathers as well today. And uh, so in just a second, I'm going to invite all of the women to stand to their feet and to appreciate uh, our dads. Now, Father's Day is a day in which sometimes you'll be like, well, I'll make a meal, or they can go out golfing or do what they want. Um, But the reality is it's kind of like, yippee dads, okay? And I have watched some of you women watch American Idol. And I've watched you watch, uh, you know, movies. And so you think you can dance. And uh, things like uh, Oprah. And, um, you know you kind of have an excitement level that's greater than what you probably uh, show on Dad's Day. So when it comes to a moment here in just a little bit, I want all the women to come up and to really kind of appreciate and to thank our dads. So, so uh, women, are you ready for this? All right. So all the women, please stand up. <coughs> and let's all together appreciate our fathers, okay? can be seated. Now, I want to actually appreciate two groups in particular. First is any of you who have been a father for 40 years or more. And you would know that if you have a child that is 40 years old, okay? So if you are 40 years uh, of a father or more, would you please stand up? Yeah, don't be bashful there, guys. There you go. All right, let's give these guys a hand. Now stay standing, stay standing for just a second. Now what we're going to do is we're going to kind of go lower to see who the oldest dad is, okay? And I have a gift for them. So how many of you have been a dad for 45 years? Okay. 50 years. All right. 55 years. Let's give him a hand. How long? 59. 59 years. So we have a little gift here from Outback, you. so you can enjoy that. Well, in the same light, we want to honor our youngest father because they need the most help. And uh, so um, if you have been a dad... For two years or less, if you could just stand up for a second. If you've been a dad, there you go, guys. All right, we got three. I would be with you. I'm one month more than that. So, uh, all right, if you've been a dad for a year or less, okay? If you've been a dad for uh, nine months or less, uh, six months or less, 
Okay. How long? Seven weeks. Seven weeks. Seven weeks. So uh, let's give him a hand. Well, today is a special day, and we do want to uh, honor our fathers. And as we begin this morning, um, I'd like us to just pray for our fathers and the teaching that God has for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, each dad who is here today. Help each of us to appreciate them on this special day. I also ask God that uh, for people who uh, are experiencing Father's Day, maybe for the first time without their dad, um, God, that your mercy and grace would reach out and bless their life. And I also pray for father relationships that are strained, that, God, you would work in the midst of those as well. And, God, maybe there are some people here, they don't even know who their father is, but, Lord, we know that uh, you're their heavenly father, and would you comfort them? And, God, today at a minimum, would we be able to, uh, would you help us to be able to thank uh, our fathers for no other reason, if it, at, at a minimum, of just being able to say, Thank you for bringing me into this world. And now, God, would you come and would you speak to us? And by your Holy Spirit, we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to understand how to handle challenges that we face in life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every single person here has faced difficult challenges. Some of you are facing a difficult challenge right now. And some of you, whether you like it or not, will be facing a difficult challenge in the future. However, I want to begin this morning by asking you, have you ever faced one of these? Anybody know what that is? It's an anaconda. Okay? An anaconda is one of the largest and most powerful snakes in all the world. It's found in South America, mainly in the rainforest. And I was thinking about Dad's Day and a day in which guys kind of get, like, you know, celebrated, that some of you might think you're tough enough to take one of these on. And so I thought, just to give you a little heads up to help you out on how to do that, I've got uh, ten ways to make sure that you can survive an anaconda, okay? And uh, here's number one. If you are attacked by an anaconda, do not run. The snake is faster than you are. Number two, lie flat on the ground. Three, put your arms tight at your sides and your legs tight against one another. Four, the snake will come and begin to nudge and climb over your body. Five. Do not panic. They do that about halfway, I think, five. Six, after the snake has examined you, it will begin to swallow you from the feet end, always from the feet end. Seven, the snake will now begin to suck your legs into its body. You must lie perfectly still. This will take a long time. Eight, 
When the snake has reached your knees, slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, and very, very gently slide it into the sl- side of the snake's mouth, between the edge of its mouth and your leg. Then suddenly rip upwards, severing the snake's head. Number nine. Be sure your knife is sharp. Number ten, be sure you have a knife. Now the reality is, none of us will probably come face to face with an anaconda. But some of us will come face to face with difficult circumstances, impossible challenges that will seem as difficult as what we're going with if we were facing an anaconda. In fact, some of you this morning are facing some very difficult stuff. No one knows about it, but you do. And you're asking yourself, can I survive this challenge? Or will this challenge consume me? Will it swallow me up? So this morning, if you're in, if you're, uh, in the middle of a rock in a hard place, I want to give you some hope through Daniel chapter 2 as we look at the story of King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and his friends. Now, as we begin this morning, I want you to ponder this question. How do I keep my head when everyone else is losing theirs? How do I keep my head when everyone else is losing theirs? Now, last week I introduced to you one of the key characters of the story of Daniel by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar. He was a ruthless and violent dictator. He was a person who was one of the most ruthless people of all political history. In fact, just his name kind of sounds evil, doesn't it? King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. So what we're going to try to do here at the beginning is for you to give your scariest Nebuchadnezzar voice to the person beside you, okay? Not to me, but to the person beside you. So on the count of three, Nebuchadnezzar, and the scariest voice you can do. One, two, three. Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was a violent and scary king. And yet, because of Daniel's faithfulness to God, he found favor in the king. However, King Nebuchadnezzar faced many difficult challenges, and that's what we're going to look at today as we look at the Scripture. The first challenge was this, difficulty sleeping from a troubled dream. Difficulty sleeping from a troubled dream. Daniel chapter 2 reads this way in verse 1. In the second year of his reign, King Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the most powerful nation in the world at that time. He was sleepless, though, in Babylon. And he had troubled dreams. Do you know what one of the major mental health disorders is in our society today? Sleeping disorders. I read a study this week, according to the National Sleep Foundation, that two-thirds of Americans, 64% of us, have trouble sleeping a few nights during the week. Now, uh, you don't have to confess, but I bet some of that 64% is here today. Two-thirds of us here 
have trouble with sleep. Now, I don't know, how many of you have ever had a recurring dream before? A dream that just kind of goes over and over again. Yeah. Well, I have one too. It usually takes place just before I'm getting ready to give the message. So it happens on Saturday nights. And it usually wakes me up in a cold sweat. And I'm standing here behind uh, the stand, and I am totally unprepared. I don't have a thing in my mind. And it gets even worse. I'm totally naked. (laughs) Now, last night I dreamt that dream, and it got even worse than that. You were totally naked. (laughs) No, I'm joking. So King Nebuchadnezzar is having this difficult time sleeping because of this recurring troubling dream. And he is not sure what to do. So he does what many of us do in this situation, and he turns to the experts of his day. The best, the brightest, the most educated, the most uh, gifted people. In verse 2 we read, So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Let me ask you a question this morning. Where do you turn to when you're facing an impossible challenge. Where do you turn to when you're having sleepless nights? Where do you turn to when you're worried? Where do you turn to when you're anxious about something in your life? Do you turn to the experts of the day? To the best, the brightest, the most educated? Do you turn to your horoscope, the psychic network, Oprah, Your Facebook friends, because they are wise advisors, right? Who do you turn to when you're troubled, in your time of trouble? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar turned to the experts of his day, and they responded confidently by saying this in verse 4. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. What do you do, who do you turn to, when you have difficulty sleeping from a troubling dream? The second challenge that King Nebuchadnezzar faced was this. Difficulty being frustrated because no one could solve his problems. Difficulty being frustrated because no one could solve his problems. In verse 5, King Nebuchadnezzar says this. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Literally, in Hebrew, what that means is piles of dung. You see, what would happen is, If you threatened a king, if you offended a king, he would go and take you, execute you, then dismember your body, 
Then tear down your whole house and then throw your body and dig a pit in that hole and he would make it a latrine. It's kind of like a series of porta potties, okay? All over you and your house if you offended the king. So King Nebuchadnezzar makes his threat and then he says this, but if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. This is like the classic example of your boss's dream being your worst nightmare. I mean, King Nebuchadnezzar is like deliver or die. Kill it, in the sense that we talk about today. Kill the dream, tell me exactly what it is, or be killed. He's saying, look, if you're so smart, then you should not only be able to interpret my dream, but you should be able to tell me what my dream actually is. And if you don't, you die. But if you do, you will receive a reward. I will promote you. I will lift you up. I will give you a raise. If you don't, you're terminated. And last week, as we talked about, when King Nebuchadnezzar terminated people, he meant it in the literal sense. So here's the scenario. The king looked to the advisors to solve his problems. The advisors looked within. And as they looked within, they became panicked and depressed and discouraged and totally despaired. Verse 10 says this, The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however, great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. You see, there's a philosophy in our culture today that says this. When you're facing an impossible challenge, when you're dealing with a difficult moment. Just look inside. Look within yourself. The problem lies within. You see it in movies. You read it in books. You see it uh, all over the television and you hear it in songs. Just look within. Look within. Look inside. Look at your heart. Trust your heart. The answer lies within. Now, it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That somewhere inside us, there is an answer to every problem struggle that we face. It sounds attractive. It sounds appealing. And yet it completely goes against what the Bible talks about when it talks about impossible challenges. And that when we're facing them, what do we turn to? In regards to looking within, trusting your heart, this is what the Bible says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And yet our culture says, trust your heart. Lean into it. Go with your gut. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, who ever walked the face of the earth, said this, Whoever trusts in his own heart is a fool. But this goes counterculture to everything that our culture is about. 
In this story, King Nebuchadnezzar goes against the culture. He looks within and he tries to find the answer. And because he can't find it, he summons the best, the brightest, the most educated people to come to look within themselves. And as these advisors look within themselves, they're bankrupt. They can't do it. I mean, they knew that they couldn't solve this problem. And so that's why they say things like this. King, no one has ever asked any of us to do something like this. It's impossible. And King, even if we were asked, there is no human being that could do this at all. This is such an impossible request. Not even God could do this. But he was wrong. The advisors were right in the fact that no other person could do it. They were wrong, though, in the fact that God couldn't do it. They were wrong when they said, God is not available. I want you to know this morning that God is available. He's always available to help you, to be with you, to give you encouragement, to help you through the most impossible challenges that you face. And this is the type of faith that separated Daniel from everyone else. All the other advisors, the wise men in Babylon. They looked within. Daniel looked outside himself. They looked within and they were bankrupt. Daniel looked outside himself to God and he found blessing. Here's the third challenge that King Nebuchadnezzar faced. It was difficulty controlling his anger and fury. Difficulty controlling his anger and his fury. Verse 12 says this. This, the fact that none of the specialists could tell him what his dream was, made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all of the wise men of Babylon. The story begins with sleeplessness. Then it goes from being sleepless to a sense of being frustrated. And finally it goes from being frustrated to a sense of furiousness, of being furious, of being angry. You know, friends, if you can't control your anger, our anger will control us. There's a guy in the church by the name of uh, Kurt Denham, and he came to me one day and we were talking about the issue of anger, and he gave me a quote that I've memorized and I've never forgotten, and it's this one. A moment of anger can result in a lifetime of pain. A moment of anger can result in a lifetime of pain. I have in my office uh, this this x-ray. I think we'll show it up here so you guys can look at it too. There's three x-rays all together. Uh, any medical people know what this x-ray is of? Some of you are like, I'm not a medical expert, but I know what it is. You know? Yeah, it's a hand. It's not any hand. It's my hand. And on the back of this uh, sheet x-ray, I have in red the words, what anger does. In February 2004, I reached one of the lowest points in my life and uh, one of the lowest moments that I can remember here at the jar. We had been a church of about 25 people and all of a sudden 
people kind of took off and we became a church of about eight people. This was before we ever even thought about a gymnasium. And on that particular day, it was like I was in a pressure cooker and it was boiling up and it was boiling with anger. And that particular day was the day of our Valentine's dinner as a church. There were only eight of us, but we all went. And I don't know what was said, but Jen came into the room. She said something, and it just put me over the top. And I went into the bathroom where she was at, and I took the the curtain rod and threw it down, and I put my hand right through the wall. My hand started swelling up. But I was the pastor, and so I still had to go to the Valentine's Day dinner. And Jen, luckily, went with me. And I'll never forget being there feeling so ashamed. And I had my hand underneath the table the whole time because I didn't want anyone to think that their pastor would have a problem with anger. That night became even more shameful because then Jennifer, who was a doctor at the hospital, now had to go to get an x-ray. And every person who reads x-rays knows that if you break your hand from a box or fracture, typically it's because someone takes their hand and puts it through a wall. We went, we went through that whole thing. Jennifer had to go through that shamefulness. Luckily for both of us, the hand wasn't broken. I didn't have to go through any more shame. I didn't have to have a cast on my hand to be able to walk around and uh, people asking questions of me say, yeah, uh, this is me, Chris Bunch, pastor of this small little organism called the jar. I can't control my anger. And the next week, I got into counseling for that. And I did that for several weeks until I could understand how to control that. Jennifer jumped in as a loving wife and helped me through that process as well. But I'll tell you, that quote means volumes. It speaks volumes when it says, a moment of anger can result in a lifetime of pain. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar had difficulty controlling his anger as well. But instead of getting help, he caved into his anger and his fury as we look at verse 13 and it says this, So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Now Daniel and his friends, if you remember from last week, they are like the valedictorians of their class. They have graduated from Babylon University. They're the best, the brightest, the most educated. Everything was looking up for them. And soon they would be a part of the king's cabinet. I mean, they are living the good life, the high life. And soon, they are going to get a knock on the door. And they'll go from living it up to being sent to death row. And you know, life is like that, isn't it? It's so fragile. One moment, we're on top of the world. Everything's going great and just like that. We receive a knock or a phone call or an email or a letter in the mail or a text and our life changes. 
And some of you this week, maybe you received a call or a letter or an email or a text. And now all of a sudden, there is a difficult circumstance that's in your life. And the question we want to ask today is, how do we respond? How did Daniel respond? Well, first of all, Daniel responded to King Nebuchadnezzar by displaying composure. He displayed composure. Verse 14 says this, When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Daniel replied in a very calm, cool, and collected way. Just like all of us do all the time, right? Not. And yet even though Daniel is close to having his head cut off, he displays composure. He didn't have a heart attack. He didn't have a panic attack. He didn't even go on the attack to King Nebuchadnezzar. He just kind of displayed, what's the scripture say? Wisdom and tact. You know, to respond with wisdom is to do the right thing. To respond with tact is to do the right thing at the right time in the right way. And that's what Daniel did. Verse 15 says this. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Daniel, even under tremendous stress, asked a question. And then he does what is so very important that many of us don't do when we ask questions. And that is, he waited and he listened. One of my favorite scripture verses that I've shared many times before comes from James. And it says this, Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And yet this is one of the hardest things for us to do. And yet, that is why I think God has created us biologically the way that he has. With two ears and one mouth. That we would learn to listen twice as much as we talk. When you're facing an impossible challenge, it's important to display composure. Here's the second way Daniel responded and the way that we should when we face difficult challenges. And it's this. He demonstrated courage. He demonstrated courage. Verse 16 says this, At this, that is after Daniel listened to the explanation of this dream, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. So here is this young man Daniel, the best and the brightest. And now he walks, though, into the Oval Office of the most powerful man on earth. He goes to him and he faces him eye to eye, face to face. But it's not just King Nebuchadnezzar that he's facing now, but he's also facing his greatest fear. And that's what I call courage, when you face fear. You see, fear is not facing impossible challenges, difficult challenges with an absence of fear. That's not what courage is. It's facing things in spite of our fears. 
Because when a trial comes, and they will come, they don't make us what, what we are. They simply reveal what we're made of. They reveal who we are as a person and who we're trusting in. And that was the essence of Daniel's life. Here's the third way that Daniel responds to King Nebuchadnezzar and that we should when we're facing impossible challenges. He determined to seek companions. He determined to seek companions. When Daniel was in trouble, he turned to two companions. First of all, he turned to his creator. The one who created him. His ultimate companion. The person who he could trust most. His heavenly father. And second, he turned to some trusted friends. Some godly companions. Who he knew would speak the truth to him. And would, and would focus on him. Verse 17 says this, Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now why did Daniel turn to his companions? Because Daniel had learned at this early part in his life that when you're going through an impossible challenge, which we talked about last week, as he was taken away from his homeland and he was placed and as a slave. And when you're going through an impossible challenge, Daniel learned that life is not a solo sport. Life is always best played when it is a team game. It was never meant to be played on an island of isolation. I mean, it's better to face everything with someone than to face anything with no one. Truly godly friends will multiply your joy. They'll make you feel good about yourself. They will divide the grief that's in your life. The Bible says this, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, their friend can help them up. But pity the person who falls and has no one to help them up. Do you have companions like that? People in your life who when you fall down, they're there to help you up. People who will give you strength when you're weak. People who will stand with you, who are for you when your world is falling apart and trouble is in order. Now, some of you might be asking, well, where do I find friends like that? Well, they're not easy to find, I can tell you that. Most of us have a lot of people who are just acquaintances. People who are there with you when everything is fine and everything is good in your life. But a few of us have friends who will stand with us no matter what. And I know a place where there are companions like this. I think of my small group that meets every other week on Monday nights. People who I know I could turn to at any moment and they would love me. They would speak truth into my life, but they would be there for me. 
And over the past six months, we've been talking about the importance of people taking risks to be a part of groups. To be a part of groups where people speak the truth and love and encourage us. Who build us up. That's why when we started the year, you'll remember, our whole theme has been Align in 09. That we would align ourselves and that many of us would be part of a group where people would speak into our lives and we could speak into theirs. And this summer, we're inviting everyone. If you've never been a part of a small group and you're concerned about it, just go to a cookout. We want everyone to go to at least one small group cookout. You don't have to say anything. Just eat. And many of you are good at that, you know? So you'll fit in. And get to know people. But as you do that, you just don't know how some trusted friendships might evolve. Because the reality is, all of us are going to face some tough times, some impossible challenges. And wouldn't it be better to go through that, surrounded with a group of people who love you and care for you, who speak truth into your life, and in the end of the day, love you as is. Friends, you were not designed to go through life alone. So take the risk today. You can sign up at the connections table to just say, you know what? I'm going to do that. I'm going to try one of those cookouts. Now, from chapter 1 that we looked at last week, we learned that Daniel and his friends were the wisest of everyone in Babylon. They were considered ten times smarter than anyone else. But what was it that set them apart from everyone else? I mean, if they were that much smarter. Well, Daniel and his friends knew that impossible challenges required divine interventions. They knew that a God-sized challenge required a God-sized solution. They knew that if you're facing a mountain, you better have a relationship with the mountain mover. And that's what made them wiser, and that's what they did. Verse 18 says this, He, Daniel, urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, this dream that he had. So that, that Nebuchadnezzar had. So that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel and his friends are asking for a miracle. They're asking for God to intervene. And God is still in the business today of miracles. And the reason I know that is because I've seen them happen in my life and in the life of other people when impossible challenges were there and they felt like they couldn't go on, that God intervened. There are a couple things that are going on in my life right now. And I'm just pleading and praying in this moment that God, would you please intervene? So let me ask you, what are you facing today? What impossible challenge, what task, what trouble are you facing? What do you need God to intervene on? There's a scripture this week that I read that was so powerful for me and that I'd like you to uh, maybe memorize it yourself. But when you're going through a difficult time, sometimes you need to hear God's voice. And nowhere is that found more than in Psalm 50:15, which says this. God says, call upon me for help when you're in trouble, and I'll help you, and you will honor me. 
Today, some of you are facing impossible challenges. And God is saying to you, call upon me for help in your time of trouble, and I will help you. Some of you are looking for a miracle. Maybe it's financial, relational, something else, but something in your life is really kind of turned upside down. And if God doesn't intervene, you think, man, it's just not going to happen. And God says, call upon me for help in a troubled time, and I will help you. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you guys to stand for closing prayer. And typically, I pray and you're dismissed and you can leave from that. But what I'd like you to do is you stand here in just a second. I'd like to just have a few moments where Isaac's just going to kind of play a guitar very silently and for you to talk to God one-on-one. What's the impossible challenge in your life right now? Maybe you need a miracle. Maybe there's a relationship that has been strained or divided or hurt and you just need God to intervene. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe your finances. You've lost your job. You've been struggling. Everything's just there and you're just like, you know what? I'm almost giving up on God, but God, I'm willing one more time to just see if you'll intervene. And as we spend this time in prayer, I want you to remember that verse from Psalm 50:15 that says, God says, call upon me if you need help in your time of trouble and I will help you and you will honor me. Let's stand for a moment of silence. Whatever that impossible challenge is, that you know you need God to intervene, just just call on Him for that now. Heavenly Father, on this day when we honor our fathers, we come to you, our Heavenly Father. And we thank you for the fact that you you hear us every time we call upon you. And you let us know, God, that you really do want to help us. And Father, today there are some of us that we're facing some impossible challenges. Some difficult circumstances, maybe they just came up this week. And we're just kind of calling out to you that you would intervene. 
For some of us, maybe it's a marriage or a relationship. For others, maybe it's our finances. Maybe it's a decision that we have to make. Would you just intercede, God? Would you perform a miracle? Would you help us, God? And and God, your word says that you will. And so as you do, God, we want to honor you. So Holy Spirit, go with us from this place. And whenever we doubt whether or not you can really be the one that helps us, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would remind us again that you say, God, call upon me for help in your time of trouble. And I'll help you. And you'll honor me. For your sake we pray. Amen. Well, have a great week. Happy Father's Day. If you'd like prayer for anything, uh, please come on up. Thanks.